I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres or give you insights into your favorite authors and to keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I had uh, the pleasure of talking to Kate Walbert, uh, who's not only a good friend, uh, but I'm a devoted fan and have read all six books uh, that she's written. Every one of them makes me happy. Her latest book, His Favorites, has been called Heartbreaking and Galvanizing. I would call the book 149-page jewel. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kate. We are joined today by Kate Walbert, an American novelist and short story writer. Her six books have included a finalist for the National Book Award, a New York Times bestseller. She's been on top 10 lists. She's won awards and fellowships. And her latest novel, His Favorites, is yet another fine example of her writing, which is gorgeous, restrained, and powerful. Kate Walbert, welcome to Just the Right Book. Well, thank you. Kate, all of your books have addressed constraints and imbalances of power as they shape women's lives. And your new book does some of the same. What elements of those constraints or imbalances drove this book for you? Well, I think I'm... um always or often writing into silences. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what draws me to um, a voice. You know, all the stories, all the novels, all the short stories start with a voice, um, a particular narrator who often, I feel, has a secret of some sort. And I don't mean a secret in a mystery kind of way. You know, there's right. a body in the attic. <laughs> but... Um, Something that she is reluctant to tell or to reveal or feels um, she can't reveal. It's a mystery for me that makes it compelling for me to follow the voice and to try to find the story, find the novel, um, find the details. So there's always some sort of mystery for me at the heart. And that's a silence. And so it's writing into a silence. I mean, I've thought about this because I've often been asked why I write so frequently the stories of women, you know, like why I'm always mm-hmm. drawn to women. And I, I swear my next book <laughs> is going to have a male narrator and it's just going to be a world of men. No. I'm going to try to do it. No, I'm going to try to do it. Why? <sighs> because sometimes it feels as if, you know, um, because I'm drawn, I, I, every time I set out, I think, okay, it's not going to go back to that. You know, it's not going to go back to these yeah. silences. And then it, it curves around and it does. Um, so you always want to reinvent yourself every time you write. So I, I, I feel like yeah. I do. I mean, I know that certain writers write in genres, but I feel every time I start something new, well, how, how is this going to be different? How, how am I going to push the form a little bit? How am I going to push myself so I'm, so I'm doing something I'm not comfortable necessarily or even familiar doing? Um, and I think that that would definitely be the case if I tried to write a male narrator. Well, I, I, I get that idea, but I also – I do subscribe to the notion – uh, that Jennifer 
is it Weiner or Weiner? I jo- never know. I never, but I love her. Yeah. I love her. I love her columns. I and love, yeah. and so you know, I do think that we have sort of a pejorative, condescending notion about books that are by or about women that we somehow think not we not you and I Kate think of them as lesser books but there is there is this um, kind of bias I think that somehow domestic stories or stories about women are somehow less enlightening or less important unless the story's being told by a man. Right, absolutely. That's and I'm not a person that normally goes to the victim of anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I do think there is something about that that sort of percolates around novels. I think you're right. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that that will change. But I think whenever something is defined as the other, so if you think about it, you have, for for a long time, you have writers, and then you have women writers, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so because we're the other, then therefore we're not in some ways to be taken as seriously, to be just – to just be known. Uh, there was a – I don't know um, if you were following it, but there was a huge uproar about three or four years ago because Wikipedia had created a, whim, a women writer's page. And so a lot of writers who happened to be women were being shifted over to the women writers. And um, I am shocked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, several writers figured this out. And there was just this big outcry. And, you know, I think I think they quickly um, backtracked. And I don't know if it was one person who was starting that or what. I don't remember the details of the story. But it just underscores that thing of if you're a woman writer as opposed to just a writer. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, we could have a whole... We could. We could have a whole show <laughs> about just that. Right. And, but I, I want to I encourage you to not necessarily default to men in your next <laughs> novel. So, I, you know, it's very interesting to me. So one of the topics or events in this book is a uh, young girl, Joe who becomes the object of affection of a professor at her high school, a boarding school. And one of the questions that you and I have talked about is, so this looks like it's just a Me Too conversation, yet that's not at all the way the book felt to me that it's part of that, of just that narrative. Well, I don't even want to say just that narrative because that makes it sound like that's not important. But when did you start the book? And I know you talk about filling silence, but why do you think you went to that topic that falls into the Me Too conversation? Well, um, I, you know, I started the book really with the strength, getting back to the idea of voice, with the strength of Joe's voice, the first line, um, this is not a story I've told before, no one would believe me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, really believe me. Um, and that, that kind of uh, grabbed me by the throat um, as a voice, as a voice with obviously a secret or something to reveal. And I followed it. And... Um, 
And so this is really Joe's story. I don't sit down with an idea that I'm going to try to pursue in a book. I let a story unfold through the voice of the narrator. And I talk about this a lot, but it, yeah. but it always sounds a little woo-woo, you know, when you say that because it sounds... Like you're possessed. <laughs> I just, I sit there with my hands folded in a particular way. and Waiting. Yeah, waiting, waiting. But there is... Like a, a Ouija board. <laughs> right. That would be fun, actually. Yeah. Just, I'm sure that's yeah. been done. Um, there is a kind of alchemy to it. There, There is a way in which um, it... it it feels uh, – well, there's a great line, my writing is smarter than I am that you hear writers sometimes say, which is – I think just speaks to this phenomenon of of following something where you're not sure how it's going to turn out or really what the subject is going to be. Hmm. And so actually when Joe meets the teacher um, – I, I I wasn't sure where it was going. Um, I And he became, as I was writing, increasingly more manipulative to her. Um, whereas in the very be- – <coughs> excuse me. Whereas in the very beginning, he was just um, nice kind. to her and kind, kind to her and, and flattering. Um, and so – it's really it's really up to me as the writer when I'm writing a scene to hear through the voice of that character, through the voice of the narrator, to hear the clues that then guide me to really what the intention is. If I had the intention, if I wrote it with that intention, it would not feel as organic to the yeah, story. It would feel like a construct. Yeah, exactly. And then it would feel like, oh, okay, so she set out to write a novel that was about this ABC. And of course, here we're going to check the blo- box and here we're going to check the box. But it just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. And I think mm. I know from teaching, um, you know, that sometimes people will come to me and say, I have this fabulous story and let me tell you this story. It's a wonderful thing and I want, to, I want to write a novel based on this story. And they can tell the story at a dinner party. They can tell the story in class and it's engaging and it's lively and everyone follows. And then as soon as you sit down to write that story, it just falls flat on the page. And it falls flat because it's already known. So all of that mystery that I think is what makes um, a work of, of fiction feel true, even when it's not true, you know, because there's a way in which it's organic. Yeah, I hate this word, but then it's authentic. Right, exactly. Even though we have to come up with another word for I li- authentic. I like organic because organic really suggests that it comes out of the fictional world that you've mm-hmm. created as opposed to feeling as if you've imposed it on it. And if yeah. you've imposed it, then, you know, readers aren't – I mean, you can – as a reader, you, you can tell the minute somebody's BSing you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it comes in very quickly. It's very hard to lie, quote unquote, on the page. But that doesn't mean that what you're writing is true. That's so, the the kind of – paradox of it. So, Kate, writers who say they outline their book, right? 
So they're finding the space within the outline to let the story evolve. Right. I, that's what I think. I mean, I've never written a book that way, so I don't quite know how it, how they do it so that it works, but they've figured that out. Uh, that would I would never be able to write a story that way. And I also think you often hear people talk about how they outline something and then the characters take over or the and end change. and change it. And you know, and that also as a as someone if if you don't write or if, if you haven't had that experience, you think, what do you mean the characters take over? I mean, you've you've got it all neatly figured out, and of course, she's supposed to kill him in the end, and then go off and you know to Hawaii and live with the man she's having the affair with. But for whatever reason, she gets killed in the end, and you can And that's that's again the magic of it. That's that's what you can't predict. Now you open the book with a a set of events yeah. that seem almost disconnected from the second part of the story. So describe for us the first set of events and how you imagine that informing the rest of the book because you open with it right, in a very powerful first chapter. Right. Well, um, so Joe is the narrator, although um, in sort of keeping keeping with this discussion of how things come to me, I didn't know her name was Joe when I started. So the narrator um, writes about how um, the first thing, the reason where she is where she is now, and really the, the catalyst for everything that follows was a night when she um, and two friends of hers, but one of whom was her absolute best friend, whom she'd grown up with, uh, got drunk and stole a golf cart. And they drive, and and um, Joe, the narrator, is the one who drives the golf cart. And not only does she drive the golf cart, but it's her idea to steal the golf cart. Mm. And that's, you know, again... That sentence, when she emphasizes the fact that it's her idea to to steal the cart, is what then informed me that that emphasis on that informed me for later things in the story, um, that this would be the story, the story of stealing the cart, and then they get into um, the cart tips and her friends. They're going fast. They're going They've been fast. Drinking. They've been drinking. It's late at night. It's a hot, humid night. Um, and they're kind of all over the course, and they um, go up a particularly steep hill and over the side, and it's a very uh, – it's a, it's a dog leg, which is a sharp turn to the left, and there's rough right in front of them. And the cart tips, and her friend, who's holding on in the back of the cart, is thrown and um, hits a tree and dies. And so that happens by page 12. And um, I guess were it a different story, that that in and of itself could have been just the story, right? <laughs> I mean, if I had written an outline, that would have been the story. Yeah, that whole chapter had right. like five novels I could have imagined. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The relationship of the girls, the mothers, the kind of parenting, the the – times that they had during the day the girls absolutely and the and the and moreover the after effect like what that did to that narrator um and but but she she tells the story in a way as as if it's almost well not a footnote but it's that you have to it's what you have to understand about her to understand everything that comes mm. afterward and so it's and it's a story she returns to in the book. 
again and again. And when I say story, it's not even a story. It's a moment. It's an image. It's she repeats the fact that there's shadows on the golf course, that it's dark, that there's lightning bugs. And she repeats these details that for me, it allowed me to understand that it's not even a narrative that she's remembering. It's just a moment, a look, the smell of the course, the look of the course, the sound of the course. It's just a visceral, a visceral kind of flash. And then everything changes. And, you know, the other thing that I uh, was struck by in reading the book. So a lot of times when you've got the narrator as the main character, you have to quickly decide whether you've got a reliable or an unreliable narrator. The way you tell that part of the story also immediately makes me feel like I'm dealing with a reliable narrator because of the texture of the way she describes what I would call the accident. Mm -hmm. And she would describe as the time she killed her friend. Right. She does not let herself not think of it in these terms. And at another point, she talks about how Every time she thinks of it, it's it's like a bomb going off. It's like an explosion going off. So, so you're saying that you believe her from the very beginning. The way in which she told it, the way that that voice came out, right, was um, declarative, right. And I'm going to read something like that. Oh, okay, good. Well, I was going to say that, but then what happens later in the book is she begins to play around with the notion of storytelling and whether um, anything that's remembered can be declarative in that way. So she mm. switches tenses sometimes. Maybe I should tell it in the third person and she'll switch tenses. And then she'll um, talk about uh, the subjunctive tense. And and, and I, what's, what's funny is that I really truly know nothing about grammar. <laughs> I mean <laughs> – which I have to admit, even though I've I've taught, <laughs> I know not, there's a great Didion line. You know the Didion line: "Grammar is a piano I play by ear." <laughs> no, I never heard that. Isn't that I a like great that. line? Yeah, 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 I like that. That's from her essay "Why I Write." So I definitely play by ear, and not even very well by ear. But it occurred to me as I was writing it, and as she was telling it, that so much depends on the telling and. To get that, those declarative sentences, so much depends on the grammatical construction Mm. and the way in which we tell stories. Yeah. We could have a whole show on how we tell stories. but We've got got like three shows. I know. I'll come back. Yeah, okay. That's great. (laughs) So here in the book, um, this is the master Mm -hmm. talking to Joe Mm -hmm. and – I'm quoting from the book, which is a quote from the master. Understand the beauty of a declarative sentence from the Latin declarare. I don't even know I'm saying that right. To make clear, to reveal, to announce. In other words, to state what you think or believe as fact. Without emotion, without qualifiers, with clean punctuation, a period. Do you understand the subjunctive? To write in the subjunctive mood is to write out of reality in a cloud of wishes, and in a haze of emotion. Right. What were you hoping for us to understand with the master saying that? Well, when the master said that, when the character um, was emphasizing that, it was a way in which she's given him a paper 
which he's completely marked up and he's given her a grade that is she's not used to getting. She's used to being very, you know, strong in in writing and um he's given her a C and she's gone to talk to him about it. And his his little role that he goes on there. You know, it felt like the ways in which it felt very male to me mm-hmm. as I was writing it and it felt as if as if it were a kind of criticism of this dominant way of speaking. It was, I mean, you know, we talk about mansplaining now, right? Yeah. A little, a, a little bit that. I mean, he's in the teacher role. So he obviously is has there the to authority. teach her and he has the authority. But there was a way in which it went. And this is the beginning of the manipulation as I was mm-hmm. understanding it. A way in which he's not just correcting her, but he's saying he's he's essentially taking her voice. Mm. You know, he's saying, um, "Why do you speak so haltingly, even in, on the page? Why don't you make your opinions and your analysis direct and to the point?" And it felt as if it was leading out of the kind of boundaries of the teacher authority and into something else for me. Mm. And later on, he talks to her about uh, – he goes on another little role about why do girls apologize all the time? Right. Why do you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry? And he mimics girls and he says it in a falsetto voice. And these these were just the lines that I would write that were his lines that were the clues for me. Oh, OK. Now this is not – this is not the way, you know, someone who respected the student or isn't after something else would speak. So that was just the kind of feeling my way through the dark. But he showed himself to be one of those um, types of authoritarian. When I read that the first time, mm-hmm. which was quite some time ago, I think I read I read the manuscript in February or an early galley. And then I reread it. I reread the book over the weekend. So I had the benefit of the whole arc of the story in rereading it. Not only do I encourage people to read it, which we'll come back to, but rereading it, I took those two conversations, the one about why do girls speak that way in this declarative sentence, as a knowing false flattery that becomes the gateway to manipulation. Mm -hmm. But the odd juxtaposition to me that was fascinating is later in the book, without saying what that circumstance was, Joe says to someone that who was trying to contextualize what happened with the master as maybe of that time, Mm-hmm. Right, that's the master. That yeah, that's yeah. the master saying it. Yeah. yeah, maybe of that time. That's right? his defense. Yes, his defense mm-hmm. that you know they wanted us to be, you know, have relationships. This was part of the whole intellectual mm-hmm. life of doing that. And she says, no, right. Under any circumstance, a very declarative sentence. This was a crime. She says, "There's a moral right and wrong." This was a crime. Right. Yeah. So the irony to me of this other language from the professor of saying, yeah, I want you to be factual and then really wanting her to be hazy and put it in context and think of it in a much softer, 
emotional relationship way was the brilliance of your writing. Oh, that, well, thank you. You know, so you're sort of seduced into, you know, yeah, cut the guy a break. You know, he's really helping her be her own woman. Right. And then she comes around. The end of the silence is a declarative sentence saying that was wrong under any circumstance. That was a crime. Yeah. So it makes you inevitably think about today. Right. And I'm not even sure where I come down on all of this. So I'll just uh, I'm just going to think out loud a little bit. But there's a part of me that thinks that when people want to wiggle around the fact that there isn't a right and a wrong, that they're looking for cover and excuses, right? That there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. I think, I think we all know. I actually do think we all know what's right and what's wrong at a kind of gut level. So here's a little bit of what I think about it. So let's say somebody in high school who's drunk with a girl who's drunk and something's going on. They don't have sex, but there's groping and there's a little part of me that wants to say, okay, is that something less than sexual harassment or is that clearly sexual harassment? It doesn't matter whether it was two people who were drunk and it was in high school and it never happened again. I recently heard a friend of mine, I guess it's kind of going around. I hadn't heard it before. But she said she loves the cup of tea metaphor. If you offer a cup of tea and somebody wants it, they'll take it. If they don't want it, they'll say, no, thank you. I don't want that cup of tea. If they're, you know, passed out, they don't want the cup of tea. You know, I I think, you know, to sort of of think of it in those terms is, is, it's just very, it seems pretty clear. Then fast forward it to the workplace, right? So I worked with all men for 20 years, mostly men for 20 years. I was never in a situation where I felt physically assaulted or threatened Mm -hmm. or unable to deal with what anybody. I didn't, I never had to come to that. But I was pretty accepting of what I would call jerky behavior. You know, people, men saying really ridiculously, um, just saying ridiculous things. But I accepted it as the environment. So that didn't make it right. And then what do you say to people who were then trying to put into context that behavior by viewing it by today's standards? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of another friend. Sorry to keep quoting my friends. That's but, okay. You know, everyone's having these conversations. And I thought this was sort of interesting. What she's, she's younger. She, she's in her early 40s probably. And she was talking about how, um, you know, she sort of rem- – remembers how her mother would say, oh, you know, if if that happens, just ignore it. And, you know, and it was all about negotiating. Mm-hmm. It was it was like a fish swimming upstream. And OK, if the boulder is there, just swim around it. And, you know, and if that's there, oh, you would just have to hop over that. And just this is what you have to do to get ahead or to, to, to function. Right. And she said, 
what she would think, even as a young girl, she would think, well, wait a second. Wh- what about moving that boulder? Wh- why yeah. aren't we talking about that right. instead of moving around and swimming here and there? And again, the analogy is um, – No, but I well, like maybe that it works. It, it works. And, she, and, and, and I thought that was a really interesting thing to say. I thought, I thought yeah, that's exactly it. And I, and I think that you know, she's that much younger that she you – know, that was her response. And I think that you – know, I think that that response of – it's time to turn the apple cart over, you know. Yeah. It's time to move it and say, no, you know, it's not right. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, Kate, the way that – I think that's right because I think the fact – I'm that much older than you are. No, you're not. Well, 12 <laughs> years. I think we're 12 years apart. Um, that I think whatever happened, absent something that clearly falls into the territory of, no, that was wrong. Right. Right, mm-hmm. where – I think I think you're right. It's like the definition of obscenity. You know it. You really know when you hear something that that's clearly outside a a view of interpretation. But I do think that with where we are now that the opportunity we have is to say, okay, that's what happened. Maybe some women accepted it, maybe society accepted it. But we're right here in September of 2018, and to use your friend's metaphor, move the boulders. Right, move the boulders. That we can move the boulders <clears throat> now. Right. That right. We're, we're we're agreeing that this is not right. That it's had all sorts of ramifications for women. Um, you know, ways in which we can't even imagine how it's derailed, directed, or compromised their lives by an experience, right? We can't there, – there's just a zillion ways that it could have happened. Time to fix it. Right. It's and, the Time's Up, which I think is a great, you know, a great name for that, that organization that came out of – I think it started in Los Angeles, but it's in New York now. And, um, I, that's, that's, that's right. And I, there was a great um, Washington Post article not so long ago that looked at 1968 – as just this oh and and you have talked about mm-hmm. this you've talked about that. that's yeah. that's interesting looking at 1968 as you know the start of the second wave and 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 chronicling certain things the protest at the Miss America pageant and um a, a few other things and the writer was saying this is 50 years later you know okay many things have changed in those 50 years but not enough things have changed now we're at that movement right. again i mean 50 years ago there were no women on the supreme court 50 years ago uh you know women couldn't have a credit card this whole list of things but here we are again and there 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 are historical echoes and i think that that's that's um and you know who's to say 50 years from now but but we're certainly in a moment yeah, and you know, on a good day, because I was in college in 1968, on a good day, and you were in grammar school, <laughs> um, on a good day, I think, okay, progress is slow, but lots of things have changed. And then on a bad day, I think it's 50 years later, and I would have never imagined so little would have happened. But I think mostly I come down on the former, because I think even the movement that's going on is about enough women being in positions of authority or power to move the conversation forward. Right. It, it, which brings me to another point in your book that I thought um, not enough attention is given to. 
And that is, where were the grown-ups in the room, right? Right. Joe's parents were, you know, reckless in their lack of engagement with Joe. The administrators that Joe reported to, this wasn't an instance where she kept the secret, you know, contemporaneously. So I assume you put those two things in there deliberately. So talk a little bit about that. You mean that the parent that 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 the, the grown ups that the grown ups are gone? Yeah, um, you know, again, it kind it kind of came out because she's Joe is older and she's telling this story. She's remembering this story. So what kind of shifts in the book is that she's older. You don't really know much about her current life, um, and you just have one moment where she explains where she is right. at the moment. Um, so it's really focused on the time when she's 15 years old. And I think that writing into that age, which is which is what I had to do because it was in the first person. So even even though she's older remembering it, it's her 15-year-old you know, self. Her 15, you know, it's it's how we do when we tell stories. We might be telling story about, you know, when we were 10 and then as we're explaining it suddenly we're telling it, you know, as if my little 10-year-old self, right? So, she's 15 and the focus of the story at that point is much sharper and really looking at the, you know, a series of events that happens to her once she's at um, the school. So I think that at that moment, she feels abandoned by everyone. Mm. So that what she cho- what she chooses to show us about her mother and her father reveals that abandonment. What she chooses to show, I mean, certainly with um, the head of the school whom she goes to see and to talk to about what's happening to her. That is just that. That was one of the most difficult scenes to to write. His yeah. his response to her, um, and I think, and I've heard from readers that that feeling, sort of, in in many different scenarios, not not this scenario of the book, but that feeling at fifteen of being. On your own, all of a sudden. I mean, it's a it's a shift that age. Mm-hmm. It really is. So, you know, obviously, within the context of the book and the story of the book, it's that much more devastating that she's alone, given what's happening to her and the failure yeah. of the adults around her. Um, yet, I think that 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 fifteen year old feeling is somewhat of a universal feeling for that age, or can be. Yeah. And you know one of the one of the reactions that I had is obviously in her relationship with her professor, there's a kind of powerlessness. Absolutely, but the powerlessness vis-a-vis being able to count on her parents or the headmaster right. felt more devastating to me in a way than the powerlessness with the professor. I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that she's just because you're if, if and I'm trying to think why I feel that way. Uh-huh. And, and a little bit, obviously, the professor is a huge betrayal of a role. I mean, that that goes without saying. But once she begins to understand that what he's doing to her, and she has the courage to then go to the headmaster, he's not supposed to be that way. Right. In other words, so you can sort of 
put put the professor in the box of a bad guy. And now that I understand he's a bad guy, I can almost defang him. I see what you're saying. So it's that much more devastating that the ones who are supposed to be protecting her, like literally there to protect her. Because um, what box is she going to put them in right. other than she doesn't matter? Right, right, right. So that felt, man, I, w- I, w- th- I was so put in the place of what anybody reporting on anybody who was then confronted by silence or inaction must feel like, whether it's a whistleblower at a corporation or a woman who's been treated bad. I mean, that was so powerful, Kate, to be in that place of saying, oh, my God, I've used every ounce of bravery that I've got. Every ounce, right. And I'm bringing it to this person whose job it is to protect me. And they're like, you know, this is not going to be good for your future, sweetie. Right. Well, I don't I, think you put Sweetie in there. No. <laughs> Actually, what he comments on is what she's wearing. Oh, I forgot that. Right. What she's wearing. What did he say? Do you remember? Um, he, he essentially says, well, it colors things to have someone come in and make an accusation like this wearing no brassiere. And, and, uh, yeah. I forgot that, right. Kate. Right. So it's her fault. Right. Right. That's the implication. Or, you know, it's it's just. I mean, that's that just speaks to what women have endured in terms of clothing, being and accountable, dress and being accountable. Yeah. And you, you ask know, for you it, ask sweetie. for it, and you're walking in the wrong place, and you're you know, stop being so good looking. Have you read this book, The Power? Yeah, I'm reading it. So, she, well, I shouldn't tell you because the ending is very interesting. But she does a really great flip at the end. And I guess this will right. be on there. Yeah, <laughs> but she yeah. does a great flip at the end, you know, because she's flipping the whole story, right? It's the women who have the power and the men who don't have any yeah. power. But All right. Let me fi- – okay. I, I have it in May okay. and I'm going up there. Uh, okay. All right. So there's a couple things I want to do because we're running out of time. Um, I think the last chapter is the most beautiful thing I've ever read. Oh, and I don't think it gives anything away. No. Um, so, Kate, before we uh, close, there's a couple of things I want to mention. And then I, if you won't mind, I'll ask you to close by reading the last chapter, which I think is just exquisite. Okay. Um, so one comment and one question. The question I ask all our guests is, what's the book that changed your life? Oh, well, it was Charlotte's Web in in my contribution to the the anthology, the right. book that changed your life. Oh, that's right. You're life. in the book. Right. I'm in the book. It was Charlotte's Web because I can still remember where I was when I read it. I was in Orange, Texas, of all places. And um, I think, I, I, you know, I wrote that essay so long ago, I don't remember what I said then, but I'll say now that it was just, I think, you know, every... Every story, I think every great story is actually a metaphor for writing. <laughs> so, um, so the ending of that book and the some pig and about friendship and mm. and all of it, uh, it just I, I think I can remember my ten year old self just being amazed that a book could that had really nothing to do with me, you know, nothing to do with my life, anything from my life could feel so true to my life. Mm-hmm. I love that line. That I love that. Some Kate. pig. 
Some pig. <laughs> uh, so uh, I've mentioned this on the show before because it happened not that long ago, but I had discovered that E.B. White reads the audiobook version of Charlotte's Web. Huh. And I am an E.B. White, like, fanatic. I just love everything about this guy, not the least of which is his home in Brooklyn, Maine, is not far from right. ours in huh. Castine, Maine. But I had this... Um, notion of him having this sort of patrician New England, New York, uh, not, not New York, but patrician voice. Mm -hmm. And he's reading Charlotte's Web and he's got this New York accent. Oh, really? Yeah, That's like funny. he's from the Bronx or something. <laughs> I would have thought the same thing because you think of him the New Yorker, you know, yeah. da, 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 Maine kind of a clipped speech right. that he would have. Right. No, no, he's this kind of like you know, like my uncle Max or something. <laughs> I want to listen to that. Really, you? Mu I okay. was and and whoever recommended to me, or however I discovered that E.B. White actually reads Charlotte's Web, didn't mention this thing about his voice. Uh huh. So I'm listening to it, and I'm saying, gee, I thought they told me E.B. White was narrating. And I go back to look, you know, it, it was in the box. I, I, was, I hadn't right. Right. downloaded it or uploaded it, whatever yeah. term you use. Right. And I was, I was just... That's funny. Isn't that cute? It's always so revealing to hear the writer read it herself or himself. I think so, too. Yeah. I, I think so, too. Um, so we're going to close with you reading okay. uh, this chapter, but I really... Kate, I want to thank you for your writing in general because I think what you just sh said about Charlotte's Web, about how a book that has nothing to do about you it is able to speak to you that way about your life is what your novels oh, thank do. You. I think that I always feel utterly immersed and connected to your characters, even though I don't think a one of them has lived a life similar to mine, but it hasn't mattered because I think it's your understanding of human nature that comes through in the books um, so vividly. And so I think that, you know, we'll leave our, our listeners with this comment from me. Everybody has to read this book, his favorites. And in the new world where we have short attention spans, it's 149 riveting pages. <laughs> you can read it in an hour. <laughs> you could. <laughs> if you read very quickly. And I just think in this time that we're in, you write about this subject and the arc of a young woman's life at the age of 15 that's important for all of us, men and women, to read and be reminded of what that looks like and what that feels like and where they're coming from because I think it's easy for us to forget. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for being on the show and then we'll leave you with Kate reading this last beautiful chapter. The magnolia grew at the edge of our yard, a gift from some friends of my parents with whom they were quite close around the time I was born. My parents a lot of fun then partiers who waited a long time for me, as some parents do for children. Anyway, these friends made a fuss about my birth, and on the day I was born, they went to our house and planted the tree at the edge of our yard, a dwarf magnolia, to surprise my parents when they returned from the hospital. And because of the Maryland soil, or the light, or God knows what, the magnolia kept growing and growing. 
the joke in our family that the poor tree did not know its own dwarf limitations, that it thought anything was possible, and so reached that majestic height as if planted from a magic seed, its leaves wide and glossy, sometimes a dark green and sometimes almost black. It blossomed the most glorious white blossoms, saucer shape, fragrant, our magnolia too big for its britches, my father said, a show-off. The point is, before everything, before I grew up, before I killed her, before Hawthorne and Master, before Carly even, when Stephanie and I were just kids, on afternoons my mother had stepped out, which were most afternoons. We would climb the magnolia's sturdier branches, daring each other to get to the next, to reach the top, where a particular one we had tested would still be there, we knew, because it was a tree, and its branches were where its branches were supposed to be, and we knew it could hold both of us for as long as we wanted and as long as neither one of us ever looked down. Looking down spelled doom. We had to look up at the clouds or the vista of the green course or the players moving around the fairways. Look at that, we would say, and we would look, talking about God knows what, nothing and everything, how she planned on becoming a veterinarian, how I planned on becoming a poet, and how the two of us might move to New York and live together after college for a year or two, the air fresh so high we were giddy from it, or maybe we were just kids, grass-stained knees, bone and blood, our possibilities endless, life endless, friendship endless, she and I endless, never-ending, never-ever, never-ending. And somewhere far away, the sorry magpie sang, sorry, 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 sorry. Or, from a dif- different perspective, the young girls sit high in the thick of the magnolia talking. They are difficult to see so high among its shiny green and black leaves. But know they are there, full of grace, beautiful, inching out on a limb they believe would not dare to break beneath the weight of them. Oh, the weight of them, the weight of us. Thanks again to Kate Walbert. Kate's latest novel, His Favorites, is available now. Uh, we want to hear from you, so please continue to send us your emails at info at justthewrightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook or Twitter page. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. Hey, Just the Right Book listeners, this is Christina Torres, the show's producer. And here at Just the Right Book podcast, we love books. And we love going to our favorite indie bookstores to browse the staff suggestions. It's what they call shelf talkers in the book biz. Well, imagine having your own personal bookseller who handpicks books just for you. Just the Right Book subscription service is a personalized book of the month club that delivers just the right book to you or the voracious reader in your life's mailbox. How does it work? Well, first you go to justtherightbook.com and choose a four, six, or 12-month subscription. Then tell us about your reading tastes and preferences, favorite authors, genres, books, and more. Then your own personal bookseller will send you books picked just for you. And if a book is not just right, no problem. It can be exchanged for another. So... Go to justtherightbook.com, pour a cup of tea or a glass of wine, sink into your favorite chair, and experience the pleasure of a great read. 
And right now, only for Just the Right Book podcast listeners, you get 10% off a Just the Right Book book subscription. Just enter promo code PODCAST. It's active now until November 1st. Happy reading!